Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast and this series of interviews I'm doing that I'm titling Radical Theology. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Michelle Voss Roberts, who is a comparative theologian who focuses specifically on the intersection and comparison of Hindu and Christian theologies. We had a wide-ranging conversation that explored her recent book, Body Parts, in which she explores the relationship between the this concept of the image of God from Christian theology and uses the work of Abhinavagupta and particularly the Shaiva teachings of the 36 tattvas to illuminate and expound upon this notion of the image of God in a more inclusive and expansive way. It was a really fascinating conversation and I hope you will feel the same. If you're interested in this interview as a video, and you can see my face and Michelle's face, this is going to be available free as a part of the Radical Theology series. And all you have to do is to go to our website and search under the courses for the free course titled Radical Theology. You can also head to the show notes for this podcast episode by heading to embodiedphilosophy.com, navigate to the interview with Michelle Voss Roberts, and in the show notes, you'll find a link to the Radical Theology free course. In that free course, you'll also find articles written by the guests of the Radical Theology series, articles that are available as PDF downloads. And a lot of these articles I've actually read in preparation for these interviews. So it gives you an opportunity to um, get a little more clarity around the ideas that we talk about and to dive a little bit more deeply into the work of our esteemed guests. This entire series is devoted to exploring the concept of theology, and in the coming weeks, I'll be speaking with other um, constructive theologians, comparative theologians, and uh, theologians from different traditions, including non-theistic ones like Buddhism, as a way of really expanding our notion of, of what theology is and can be. According to Michelle today, she defined it as faith-seeking understanding, which is really quite a beautiful concept to work with because it really broadens um, the scope, A, of, of what we mean by faith, and then also what we mean by understanding. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Michelle Voss Roberts. I'm here today with Michelle Voss Roberts, and Reverend Dr. Michelle Voss Roberts is Professor of Theology and Past Principal at Emmanuel College, which is a multi-religious theological school in the Toronto School of Theology and the University of Toronto. She is a comparative theologian who works in Christian and Hindu traditions, as well as an ordained minister in relation to the United Church of Canada and the United Church of Christ. Her teaching and research invite others to imagine themselves in relation to diverse religious worlds in which particularities of embodiment, such as gender, gender identity, and sexuality, racialization, disability, and culture matter. Dr. Voss Roberts' book-length works in comparative theology include Dualities, A Theology of Difference, which is actually the first um, uh, work of yours that I was introduced to, which centers medieval women theologians. And then Tastes of the Divine, Hindu and Christian Theologies of Emotion, 
an exploration of Rasa theory and theological aesthetics, which received the award for excellence from the American Academy of Religion. And then more recently, Body Parts, a theological anthropology, which was published in 2017 by Fortress Press, um, and which we'll be focusing a little bit on today, reimagines the Christian teaching that human beings are created in the image of God through the prism of the tattvas in non-dual Shaiva thought. Voss Roberts is also the editor of a volume that brings interreligious comparison to the introductory study of theology called Comparative Theology, Insights for Systematic Theological Reflection, as well as the Rootledge Handbook of Hindu-Christian Relations, which was published last year. So hello, without further ado, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me uh, this afternoon, or actually it's morning perhaps where you are, or early, late, late morning. It is, yes, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So um, it's been a great honor to get this opportunity to talk to you. I've known about your work for some time. Um, initially, for, like I said, from the book Dualities, which um, I found very fascinating. And I do want to talk a little bit at that, uh, about that at some point today. But I'd like to start with um, comparative theology and, and uh, some of the articles that I encountered of yours related to religious studies curriculum and um, and and how to to introduce a kind of multi-religious interreligious focus into uh, curriculums. But before we get into that, let's actually first start with maybe a, um, uh, a little bit about yourself and what led you to this work that you do. What led you to um, become a theologian uh, in the first place? Sure, I think I was always a theologian. I was raised in a, in a family of ministers in the Christian reformed tradition. And um, so I was surrounded by theology all the time and was often overhearing it and participating in you know, arguments about things like whether women can be ordained or should be ordained. Um, so, when I went to uh, went to college, I uh, gravitated very much towards studying religion, theology, scripture, uh, because that's just where my imagination liked to wander. Uh, the mm. big questions, the inheritance of sacred texts, um, the meaning of life. <laughs> uh, so I think I've always been a theologian, but in terms of how I got to the kinds of research interests that you uh, very graciously introduced, um, I like to joke that it wasn't until I studied Hindu traditions that I realized that I had a body or at least that bodies matter religiously. So uh, the, the denomination that I was raised in uh, kind of gave me the impression that my soul and my beliefs were the only thing that counted. Um, and of course, I discovered later that not all Christian communities, not all wonderful Christian thinkers have, um, have uh, approached things that way. But you know, th this idea that, that your soul or your beliefs are, are all that counted really sort of rubbed up against the reality of me as a fledgling theologian and someone who was excluded from or ordination in my own tradition. So it seemed like my body kind of mattered a little bit. <laughs> and that was a question that I carried with me. And, you know, was that 
when I encountered Hindu traditions uh, in, in a college course, I, I realized, you know, th there was something about the, the sensory dimension, smells and chants and gestures, and you could see goddesses, you know, this really caused my religious imagination to catch fire in new ways. So I pursued those interests through study. I, I think I'm, I'm constituted like an academic or like a scholar, and that was a path that was open to me. So I just studied and um, I ended up at Emory University for my master's and my PhD, which was a wonderful place. I was in a theological studies uh, uh, I was in two theological studies programs consecutively, uh, but I also had the opportunity to study South Asian traditions. And there were faculty there who were really supportive, Thomas Tangaraj, uh, Lori Patton, Wendy Farley, uh, Parimal Patil was there at the time, and I studied Sanskrit. Uh, it was just this really rich place to explore the questions that, uh, that I was thinking about. And I also had uh, the opportunity uh, to, to study in India for a couple of short-term, for a language program, uh, a short-term uh, dissertation project. Um, mm. So that's that's kind of how I, I came to these kinds of um, these kinds of questions. Yeah. So I want to reflect for just a moment on you know the 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 idiosyncrasy of actually this series that I mentioned before we started recording, um, uh, which is uh, I'm titling Radical Theology, and in it I'm interviewing people such as yourself about. Um, different approaches to theology that extend beyond the ways in which theology has kind of been colloquially understood, which is generally a kind of stuffy, perhaps armchair practice that, you know, deploys um, rational arguments about the existence of God. And generally speaking, it is associated with Christianity. Now, many podcast listeners, long-term listeners of this podcast, um, will not be used to Christianity as a topic um, or even interreligious dialogue as a topic because we've generally emphasized, you know, non-Western traditions, particularly Hinduism, yoga, meditation, and, and the like. And, and so, you know, uh, for me, getting an opportunity to have these conversations is a bit like a healing practice for myself because I had a lot of trauma from being kind of everyone who's listened to this podcast probably knows the story by now. I was sort of exiled from my Christian church for being gay. Um, and, um, and so I have a lot of kind of uh, religious trauma around that and, and really have kind of, as a result, um, felt no ability to kind of relate to, to kind of the Christian teachings anymore, which is partly why, you know, I seek out and embed myself in, in other spiritual traditions. But I feel like there's so much beautiful, incredible work happening, um, you know, within the wider world of theology with individuals like yourself and the Tominal, as I had mentioned, and, and others who I'm looking forward to hopefully interviewing, um, which just offers such a broader picture of what theology is and can be. So I kind of want to um, come to that very basic question for you. Um, about what theology has become for you, and and did you ever have to reconcile yourself? Do, do, you know, uh, it sounds a little bit like you came from a pretty progressive church, for to begin with. Did you ever have to reconcile yourself with these rigidities? In and and how did you you know do that? Oh, 
I, I should just say, I, um, I really feel the story that you shared um, because unfortunately the Christian tradition um, has wounded so many people and its institutions have. And sometimes, you know, one wonders with its entanglement and all of this othering right, um, of, of people who are inside and outside of people who are saved and damned, um, of the colonial uh, connections, whether doing Christian theology is even worthwhile. And I, you know, I, I now teach in Canada, which is a, a quite a secular country compared to the United States where I was raised and, and, and worked for the first part of my professional life. And it seems like a very strange thing to do with one's life, to, to study theology and to think that Christian theology is important enough to continue to do in, in any form. And, and I feel that as well. I uh, actually, the, the denomination which I was raised is not one of the more progressive ones. And I think that's part of that uh, sort of rubbing up against um, the, uh, the particularities of my embodiment, which meant that I was not supposed to teach men. Um, and uh, my deep interest in these questions and the, the realization that my mind could do this work and wanted to do this work, um, uh, that was a real tension and I think a sort of driving, um, a driving force for me. You know, my, my dissertation in my first book, Dualities, focus on, um, well, I had been studying the bhakti tradition and it turns out that in uh, medieval Europe around the same time uh, as in India, when the vernacular tradition started to flourish and a religious literature, uh, poetry, song started to proliferate, women got to be a part of that. Like who's gonna stop them, right? You know, they spoke the language, they, they related to the divine and they, you know, some of what they shared lives on. And I was so interested in that, like how it is that they came to voice in their, you know, using the tools that they had and um, in their deep sense of, of the divine and, and then also thinking and working within traditions that weren't always friendly to them in certain ways, finding liberation within and in their own kind of, um, uh, I, I've been reading Leanne Vitamosake Simpson, um, who's an indigenous um, Mississauga writer near where I live um, now, she talks about like flight paths to liberation, like to mm -hmm. find those within the tradition. And that's, that's how I've been looking for those flight paths or those, um, as, I, as I talk about in body parts, openings in the Christian tradition that have different ways of thinking about embodiment, about who we are, about our relationship to the divine. So I, I know that, uh, you know, a lot of people have found refuge in um, Hindu traditions and Buddhism and in the in the traditions of um, you know, the so-called East, right? Um, and I feel that tug because there's so many wonderful ways of framing things and practices. And yet I keep my foot in the Christian tradition because being a scholar, I know that the inherited story of how things are is not the full story. And there are these beautiful openings and thinkers and practices that have been either forgotten or buried. And I wanna lift those up and say, Christian tradition um, 
has so many problematic entanglements and so many beautiful moments that are worth holding on to. Mm. So I am maybe maybe you don't encounter um, these people so much anymore, but I'm curious sort of how you respond to that charge when when someone hears you're a Christian theologian, do people put you in a box of sort of like, oh well, you must be a fundamentalist or or something like does that happen and and how do you tend to respond to that um, that um, preconception? Um. Yeah, people have all kinds of preconceptions. So I tend not to tell people what I do when I fly on airplanes or- You're like, I'm an academic, full stop. (laughs) I work in an office. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think for starters, when I just had a conversation like this um, over the weekend where um, it was surprising to the person that I taught theology Um, And they themselves were like very much involved in Bible study. And I was this weird kind of animal because in their tradition, uh, um, like the one in which I was raised, like women don't preach. And so I I talked about when I was, um, you know, when I preach, I try to involve my child and, you know, and and give them a voice and um, what what a minute you preach, right? Like there are, so, so the surprise that, that, that Christian tradition isn't sort of uniformly um, patriarchal, although that definitely still occurs in mainline denominations and very progressive denominations. So right now I'm, um, so my ordination is in the United Church of Christ, which is a U.S. denomination, and I'm working toward admission in the United Church of Canada, which is, um, uh, you know, if I had to choose a Christian denomination off the page based on like public statements and justice stances and and work on um, on uh, uh, sort of um, progressive causes of all sorts, right? One of the first denominations to uh, ordain um, gay and lesbian people. You know, like I I would choose the United Church of Canada off a page any day. And, um, and and so then then we continue to grapple maybe even from the other side as opposed to like assuming that you know the only kind of Christian is fundamentalist. Um, in in Canada, the biggest problem with Christianity, I think, in the in the public, well, the second biggest, I'd say, the other big problem is the colonial legacy because Canada is coming to grips with its. Um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the legacy of the residential schools, which were basically prisons that the church ran for for the Canadian government and and the Canadian government abducted and in other ways coerced um, Indigenous children, uh, took them away from their family and often they died and and suffered all kinds of trauma in these schools. And, you know, we're just coming through a summer where unmarked graves of these children at the residential schools are, are being um, quote unquote discovered, right? The indigenous communities knew that they were there, right? So um, in, a, in a denomination like the United Church of Canada, it, it, it being in this context, it's like, wh- how on earth do we reckon with the colonial legacy? And um, that's, it, it's really tough. I mean, Christian theology has practices of confession and um, the language, the secular language is apology, but then also reconciliation. That's a deeply theological concept. How, how does that happen in, in 
in the contemporary world. So that's that. Those are some of the push and pull around, you know, what it what it's like to be a a, a Christian theologian, um, and, and and what people kind of place upon that when they when they hear that. Yeah. So um, beyond theology being like you know we were saying what we were or I was suggesting earlier how it can be sort of seen as just you know rational arguments for the justification of God and then you know your arguments are wrong and, and therefore your tradition is obsolete or <laughs> defunct because <laughs> my argument is better than yours um, so you know you have this um, there's the spirit of your work especially in the articles I read about interreligious and multi-religious education where um, you seem to be suggesting that, you know, the study of theologies in the plural is actually incredibly um, uh, important and, and can be quite fruitful. And so I'm, I'm curious what you think about um, the way, and I'm, and I'm not sure actually what it is like in Canada here in the UK. Um, I've recently learned this because I have friends who are doing a PGC degree, which is like teaching in secondary school and, and they're in the religious studies track. And in secondary schools, students can, it's an elective, but students can decide to learn about, you know, different religions. Whereas in, you know, the US public school system, as far as I understand it, you know, you can't have religious classes about religion. Um, and so, you know, it just opens up this broader kind of question of what is the, what are the stakes in learning about other theologies? What do they offer um, us in terms of our own ability to, you know, be, I don't know, better citizens or show up for each other better? What do, what does having um, an inter, inter-theological or multi-religious outlook um, and education do for us? Oh, that's a great question. So uh, you, you circled back to this idea that theology is about uh, proving one's own, sort of the truth of one's own view about God um, and proving other people wrong. And, and that that's a kind of branch that's been called um, apologetics, right? The truth yeah. of mind, you know, refuting others. Um, theology more broadly defined is um, faith seeking understanding. That's a definition that comes from um, Anselm and Augustine. Um, and uh, the idea is that you, you exist in this relationship with the divine, um, this, this posture of faith, um, which can include a lot of doubt also, um, and that you seek to understand what that's all about. And, and the seeking of understanding does involve um, reason and um, study of texts and making arguments. I also think it involves all the, and this is one way that actually the Indian traditions help me very much. Um, it's not as if it's reason and everything else, but rather when you look at how the human um, sort of the mental apparatus is, is um, considered, there's, there's buddhi and there's manas and, you know, manas, the mind is also the heart and the emotions. And so I think that all of that comes to how we seek to understand this orientation towards the world. Um, so, you know, and how we do that, that might include guidance from sacred texts and wise teachers of one's tradition. Um, I, I, I think that that kind of broad understanding of what theology is um, 
it positions people really who uh, people of faith or people who practice in traditions or wonder about these things. We're all kind of theologians if we're doing that. And uh, many theology programs are like Christian theology, like you'll only study Christians and you really sort of go there to, to get formed, right, formation in the tradition. So you're a good representative of it. Um, but that's a little artificial because this idea of faith seeking understanding, um, it's, uh, or even just big questions. My, my own um, doctoral mentor, Wendy Farley, uh, sometimes describes it as pain seeking understanding, right? Just mm. asking why. Mm. And it's very that, Buddhist. Yeah, that kind of quest, it involves, I mean, it involves everything we encounter. And we live in a multi-religious world where people are reading different sacred texts. They're practicing in different ways. Our dear friends, sometimes even our partners have different wisdom traditions that they're drawing from. And to, to sort of shut all of that out and then just do theology in one tradition to me seems rather artificial. I think it's important to really think carefully about your own formation and who you are and, and where your lineage is. Um, but that doesn't mean that a, a sort of careful and disciplined and respectful learning from others um, can't be part of it. In fact, I think just on a popular level that happens all the time. People who are religiously hybrid or spiritual but not religious are, are really evidence that this kind of activity happens all the time. So studying comparative theology um, is a way of, well, first of all, there's a method to it, which we can talk about if you like. Um, but then, you know, I work in theological school and it's a multi-religious theological school, which is so exciting. Um, but um, when you do that kind of faith-seeking understanding together with people of different traditions in a school, you can be really disciplined about like, what are the decisions we're making about how we're gonna set up a curriculum? How are we going to make sure that our students know some basic stuff like religious literacy about the, the traditions represented here? And then how do we develop good habits for having dialogue with one another? And that's that's tricky, especially given the colonial legacy, Christian hegemony, um, racism. There are all kinds of things that make it really, really, um, I think exciting, but also challenging to bring together diverse people who are doing faith-seeking understanding um, in their own ways, but together. Hmm. Maybe the answer to this has already been mentioned by kind of versions of SBNR, which is um, spiritual but not religious, as you mentioned. Um, but I guess my question about faith-seeking understanding, which is, you know, it's a beautifully broad definition. Does that faith have to coincide with a particular picture of the divine, or can it be sort of a, an intuition of a mystery that, you know, I'm seeking clarity around? Um, and I guess, you know, the other side of that question is, must faith-seeking understanding be um, a member of a particular tradition, right? Or is this something that actually, you know, we can find even in, in otherwise so-called secular individuals? Um, because it seems like there is sort of a, a belief in the sanctity of, of human life that's almost a religious idea in so much secular ideologies. I think if, if you ask different theologians this question, you'll, you'll get different answers. I, I work mm -hmm. in 
Toronto, we have the Toronto School of Theology, which is a consortium of seven different theological schools, and we have different ideas about what theology is. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic tradition in particular has, um, would say that the teachings of the church have the most authority. And so that really does mean being formed by uh, one's own tradition primarily, although many wonderful uh, uh, Catholic comparative theologians, and I think you talked to some or will on this podcast. Um, but, you know, I come out of a Protestant tradition um, where uh, there are different kinds of ways of, of, of thinking about authority. Um, and, and, and really a liberal Protestant tradition at this point where exactly what you're talking about of sort of a sense of holy mystery or um, Paul Tillich will talk about um, ultimate concern, um, the feeling of dependence, right? What, how to put words to this orientation towards the, the holy mystery that, that is, is, is experienced, right? Um, and uh, so, a, I think you mentioned to me earlier that John Tatominal uh, will be featured on the podcast and his research is really important for exploring and understanding um, secular positions and spiritual but not religious positions and hybrid spirituality as, as really doing that activity of theology. The, the word theology does have the word theos in it, God, right? Um, which at our school, we often uh, talk with uh, with the Buddhists and, and, and also, also often ask the Buddhists, like, is it okay that we say theology? And again, people um, from non-theistic traditions, like, that doesn't resonate with me. Um, and so we, you know, what language do we use? It, again, this is an this is an example of um, sort of Christian hegemony in a way, or a theistic hegemony. Um, so, uh, you know, but even within the theistic traditions, there's this apophatic strand, which means like beyond what can be said, right? We, we use a lot of words, we describe God, right? Uh, attributes of God and all of that. But also there's this, there is this mystery that's beyond what anyone can put words to. And this is, this is a great connector to the, to the Indian traditions as well, where it's neti neti, it's not this, it's not that. Um, uh, you don't necessarily have to have theistic language or talk about God to be doing this activity. Um, need maybe a better language for what it is. Um, uh, search for wisdom, that's philosophy, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe not as it's practiced at the moment, but yes, historically. <laughs> Hopefully right. it'll return to that, yeah. Or karma, or, you know, um, that I, I think there's a lot of, the, the point is not, this is a, this is perhaps not a good activity for everyone, but rather that the very question, because it's emerged in the space between different uh, paths, different life stances and, and um, traditions, it, it, the, <laughs> that's productive, that's fruitful, that we have this question about what to call what we're doing, because um, that breaks us out of maybe some of our habits and assumptions and it opens things up for us a little bit. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about um, uh, your recent book, um, uh, Body Parts, A Theological Anthropology. Um, this was a really exciting um, read for me because I'm actually um, studying Abhinav Gupta's work and I'm in, a, in one of my seminars is reading the Tantra Loka, which is wildly difficult. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it, it was beautiful to kind of read this very creative um, 
intersection um, between uh, Christian theology and and uh, the focus really for you was the 36 tattvas, which you refer to at one point as the 36 body parts, which I thought was really great. Um, and, uh, and you go into kind of a, um, the structure of the book explores how these 36 tattvas then are kind of broken down into the conscious body, the limited body, the subjective body, the engaged body, and the, the elemental body. Um, and as you mentioned before, the body and emotions are are, are quite central to the work that you do. Um, and I know you've, you've already start, started to address this, but I wonder if you could just speak to, um, you know, why is, is it, is it um, because of the historical exclusion of the body from, from so much um, religious uh, teachings and, and, and then of course, even further than that, the denigration of the body um, so much by uh, different traditions that has kind of encouraged you in this work of, of focusing on the body? Is that, is, is that part of the inspiration or, or what's the story behind that focus? That, yes, that is kind of the start of it, the denigration of the body, but also connected to the way that denigration of particular bodies supports unjust social structures. So yeah. um, in, in Genesis one, in, in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, it starts out with the creation of the world and, and of human beings. And it says that human beings were created in the image of God, which is just astonishing, right? Beautiful, affirming, um, and a, a wonderful practice for also thinking about our differences and to recall that, you know, there's this teaching that all of us have the divine image, bear the divine image. But yet, uh, in the theological tradition, what that image is, um, you know, I, I should say that the, the Christian tradition has never really uh, like held a big ecumenical council where everyone got together to decide what exactly is this image of God. Uh, that is, there's a lot of diversity actually about that, but the dominant interpretation has been that the thing in us that is most like the divine is uh, the rational capacity of the soul or something like that, right? Um, and so the soul is the thing that is uh, saved. It's the essential part of the human being. Um, it becomes thought of as the part of us that survives death. And that's the thing that's supposed to be the image of God in humanity. Um, so what happens though with that is uh, human beings are different and uh, from one another. And if you hold up something like the ability to reason as the thing that's most like God, then a whole bunch of things, uh, inferences were, are made about who is most like God actually, because not everybody has the same rational capacity. You think about children who haven't quite grown into their rational capacity, or maybe people late in life who um, uh, maybe have dementia or, um, and, and when it comes to theology and leadership of churches, uh, there are some really difficult passages in major Christian theologians about women not having the same rational capacity as men, and therefore, how could they represent Christ? How could they um, be teachers? 
So, um, and, and then on down the line, um, uh, racial classifications also based on sort of who has a rational soul and who doesn't, uh, disability. And, um, and so all of these human differences create questions about really um, what is the relationship of our embodiment to this teaching that we're created in the image of God? And one of the things that I was so in, just inspired, because this is a theological, like I'm, I teach Christian theology, and this is a tough question. So when I'm studying um, non-dual Shaiva traditions, and as a comparative theologian, we do focus pretty um, we focus, right? Um, we don't sort of say in general Hinduism teaches, right? We, mm -hmm. uh, so I've, I've studied primarily um, uh, within non-dual Shaiva uh, traditions and um, this idea of the tattvas and, and the way that Abhinavagupta talks about them as this is the body of consciousness. And he also introduces this language of reflection, the Marsha, right, uh, Pratibimba, like there's the divine splendor and we, um, we reflect it and there's a mirror happening here. And, and so we too, in, in that tradition, um, the, the cosmos, the cosmic body, the divine body, the individual body, have these 36 parts that are reflected off of the divine body and it's diverse, right? So there's that multiplicity, first of all, and it includes materiality and bodies. And I just thought, wait a minute, there is something here I wanna spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, are there any openings in the Christian tradition where the image of God could include bodies or actually embrace multiplicity instead of just saying, oh, there's just this one thing that makes us like God. Mm. Okay, so the so just to clarify around that, so the 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 starting point is the is this i this unclarified idea in Christian theology about the image of God, and the kind of dominant assumption that that the image of God is some sort of singular thing that doesn't isn't encompassing or inclusive, and so um, the the adventure <laughs> with the thirty six tapas and Abhidhavagupta's work is is one of of kind of broadening the scope of inclusion. Um, is that is that is that how I should understand it? That's right. And you know, as I got into studying this, it was it was clear that because this was never really nailed down in the Christian tradition, there's actually a diversity of interpretations. So um, there are these substance anthropologies, uh, you know, what it means to be human, where it's something like the soul or the will. Um, but then there are other people who say, no, the image of God is a function, like um, to be creative like the divine or to have dominion over creation or to follow Jesus' example, to do something that makes you in the image of God. Um, and then there's a, there's a third camp. So there's the substance, the function, and then relation. Maybe relation is the way that we image God. And um, for Christians, we talk about the Trinity and there's this sort of relationship with them, with the, with the three persons of the Trinity and, and their, the Trinity's relationship with humanity. And here we are in relationship with one another. Maybe that's how we image God. So there are, there are actually a bunch of options in the Christian tradition about this. Um, but when I studied each of these, and there, there are theologians of disability who really helped me realize that it might, you might think that um, 
the relational, I think the relational version is the most inclusive, but even that has the potential to set up a kind of hierarchy of who does that better or who has the more capacity for it. And thinking about disability, especially profound intellectual disability, again, puts us at this loss to think, are we ever gonna have a, an idea of what it means to image God that doesn't exclude somebody? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So then let's talk a little bit um, about, let's unpack it a little bit, the conscious body, the limited body, the subjective body engaged elemental. And then you have a, um, an epilogue on the ecumenical body. Can you talk about a few of these and sort of you know how, um, how a reflection on these and their associated tapas like helped you think through um, this notion of the image of God? Sure. So um, the 36, uh, you know, I, I didn't really want to write 36 chapters and thankfully, <laughs> uh, Benavagupta and others in the tradition do group these tattvas and, you know, they'll talk about the five and the five, the 10 and so forth. So the way that these emerge, um, and I have this diagram in the book, which helps me think about this, where um, on one side there's an eye, because when Shiva is meditating, nothing exists, there's no creation. But when Shakti starts to wake him up, his eyes start to open. And it's like when you are first waking up and things are kind of blurry, so you don't really see objects, but gradually things come into focus. Um, and, and so when Shiva opens his eyes, gradually creation emerges in very, very subtle degrees until, um, until you know, the, the, the elemental body, the elements, the gross and subtle elements come into being as well. And, and creation is fully formed. And then when Shiva closes his eyes again, it all sort of absorbs back into him. Um, so uh, the, the first and most subtle things to emerge um, are these like degrees of consciousness and um, that that range from a pure absorption in I right in a sense of I am right and, and so uh, from pure I it, it emerges into an intent to create just a glimmer like oh maybe we could create something and then a sense of of like I am I am this this I am right of various uh, blurry, nothing is fully distinct yet. Um, so that's the conscious body. And this is something that, you know, if you're proficient in certain kinds of meditation, or if you're blessed with that sort of moment of being able to taste that, you might be able to experience that as part of yourself. Um, in the book, I, I look at what, what I'm calling the conscious body, this first set of body parts as um, uh, <laughs> In terms of, um, I mean, there are a lot of interesting places, like if you want to read the book, there are lots of interesting places of these very subtle differentiations um, that, that I compare in the, in the Christian tradition. But what I think is, is most important is that this actually starts to answer the question of profound int intellectual disability or people for whom um, like they're not fully even conscious of another. Right. Um, and so there there is even scientific language, um, the Ranchos Los Amigos consciousness scale, coma scale. Right. Like how much consciousness is, is happening of, you know, how much awareness of others is happening. And um, this sense that these are all parts of divine consciousness in us that we mm -hmm. reflect. Um, it, this gives us a place to, to say, like, 
here is a really like most of us barely experience that when we are waking up, but some people sort of live in that um, mode of consciousness. So uh, that, that's a part of it that I'm really excited about. So I talked about that for a bunch. So maybe I'll just pause there. Would you like me to kind of briefly move through the other? Yeah, I would love that. Okay. So um, what happens next is Maya, right? Um, that, that sort of artifice um, that allows um, Shiva to experience the world as other, right? And, and this is, I, I really appreciate that this is a, a non-dualistic tradition because it's fully true that divine consciousness permeates all parts of the body that, uh, and it's all the divine body. And yet in order to have a relationship with someone else, there needs to be an I and a this, uh, you know, you and me. And so Maya graciously allows that by, by, and then the next body parts are a series of limitations. So, so, you know, to limit the divine power so that others can have agency, to limit knowledge, to, to have desire, right? Limited satisfaction, limitation in time, limitation in space. All those contingencies are also part of the divine body. Just blows my mind to think of, about it in that, in that kind of terminology and then make the turn to this really challenging question for, for Christians for whom like God is perfect and whole and immutable. And, and actually, if you look at the biblical God, God is much more interesting than that. That's Greek philosophy, essentially. Um, so to think about limitation as maybe even part of what the image of God is. I have two chapters on that because I think it's really exciting. The next, the next set of body parts um, I'm calling the subjective body, and this is this goes from the individual subject. Uh, so this is this is um, Purusha, Prakriti, um, Bhuti, um, Ahamkara, Manas, right? Um, the subjective body, where we're, we're individual subjects, we're individual centers of consciousness. We're aware of that. What is inspiring to me about this is, you know, if Christian theology thinks of the rational soul or something in this subjective body as being the image of God. In, in this sort of scheme of things, this is Tatva's number 12 through 16. It's just right in the middle of a whole bunch of ways that we image the divine. It's not especially important. It actually creates some problems for us, right? Because our, our minds are, um, are veiled by Maya and they are, um, uh, very busy and they are sometimes diluted and um and complicated right but the subjective body is where all of the so so basically that that chapter is about putting the mind in its place it's mm. not uniquely the image of god mm. the next set of body parts there are 10 called the engaged but i'm calling them the engaged body and that includes um hearing, touching, seeing, tasting, smelling, speaking, grasping, walking, excreting, and procreating. These are all ways that if we think about relationship as, as the image of God, these are all ways that we're set up to be in relationship to a world. We have senses, right? Um, we, we engage the world through these things that are also part of the divine body. And then finally, the last are the elemental body, the 10 gross and subtle elements, which I use in the book to think beyond. Um, so first of all, um, to think beyond 
the human as uniquely in the image of God, because every element down to every cell in the universe is permeated by the divine. And I think, you know, in the Christian mystical tradition, there is no reason you, you can't say that, right? Um, and, um, you know, to reclaim the material as, as good, right? First chapters of Genesis, the cre creation was good. And also the elemental body is so important, again, um, for reminding us, you know, um, we think of this in, in a modern kind of mind-body uh, setup that the elements are material, right? But we know in the um, in this this cosmology that everything from prakriti, which is um, in the middle, uh, through uh, the element of earth. That's all material. And that includes our minds. Our minds are prakriti, they're matter. And so um, remembering that that the elements and, and the material, like we are we are material through and through, and that is also part of how we image the divine. All of that is so exciting to me. Um, and so, you know, I can see how that is affirmed in this um, in this school of thought or these school tantric schools of thought. Uh, and again, my question was, where are the openings in Christian theology to affirm something like that? And it turns out there are openings for that, which I find really generative. Mm, mm. So that's fascinating and it's really beautiful. And, um, and I love the way that you've kind of brought it to a really kind of practical way, especially in the in the early year chapters about disability and and the way in which this kind of picture of the divine affirms those, you know, various experiences of disability as themselves also reflective of of the divine image. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, to get back to kind of an earlier we we could have segued into this conversation about comparative theology, but um, and so I'd like to go back to that now and just and and just ask a little bit about how this um, project for you has resituated your own um, relationship with um, with theology more generally, and 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 maybe we can talk about that in the context of what comparative theology is to you and how you deploy it kind of as a methodology? So comparative theology, just for a brief thumbnail, um, I, I've really, so I, I should say that uh, comparative theologians uh, following people like uh, Francis X. Clooney, um, who in Hindu Christian um, comparative theologies is, has really shown the way. Um, that he, he primarily approaches it through the reading of texts. And that is also how I have learned. Although this is, is opening up to other methodologies to study of ritual, maybe incorporating some ethnography, right? Because theology, again, is this full-bodied experience. It's not just something that happens when you read texts by yourself, you know, um, or with others, right? Um, so, um, I, I return again and again in my mind to this article by um, Jonathan Z. Smith, um, who's from, you know, comparative religion, but, you know, what is, what do you do to compare well? Well, you study deeply one thing, then you study deeply another thing, and then you compare them, 
And then in order for it to be kind of, I mean, you could do that your whole life, which is, you know, great. Um, and, and actually Frank Clooney really encourages us to stay in that movement of like learning really deeply from one tradition, then returning to your own tradition and asking new questions of it and learning deeply there again, and then returning with new questions to the other texts. And, and you know, um, that, that discipline in itself is a beautiful thing to do because it, it, it really helps you to go deep. And you'll notice that what we're not doing here is like big generalizations about Christianity as a whole or Hinduism as a whole. And you know that category is hugely problematic because there are so many distinct schools and practices, right? Um, and so, so comparative theology is like, look, choose something and learn it well. And this is a lifetime um, experience probably, or could be, right? Um, so you have this back and forth, but then um, I, I, what I appreciate about Smith's um, fourth step is he's like, well, so what, right? And that's the rectification of categories. So after doing this back and forth, learning deeply, asking questions back and forth between the traditions, what have you learned? Um, and that for me is the constructive moment in comparative theology. So um, in, in Christian theological schools, we think of people being historical theologians or systematic theologians or practical theologians or constructive theologians, those who are thinking in contemporary ways and reformulating the tradition in ways that make sense for today in light of our questions. And, and for me, it's great to have a constructive moment to say, what do I, what did I learn about this, right? Now, what I've learned, um, well, I, sh I should say, first of all, it, I hope that it's clear that this is not a sort of, and this is complicated, right? Because all of this is born out of colonial encounter. Um, but by having this kind of discipline, I hope that what's not happening is a really easy sort of appropriation of like, I like a little bit of this. I like a little bit of that. Yeah my own thing it's all for sale right um but rather it's it's serious it's it is taking another tradition seriously enough to actually try on its categories and see how it works right and um jose cabazon uh, writes about theory parody and i know this is something that it matters a lot to embodied philosophy into your podcast that you know there is no reason that greek inheritance, you know, you know, that, that Greek philosophical inheritance in, in Western philosophy and Christian theology, or, or even, you know, Christian categories, or Western um, ways of thinking about it, that that has to be the terminology that we all use. We are now, we've been sufficiently in contact as a globe, that we ought to have some theory parity where good ideas and categories from around the world are actually the ones that we start to think with. And so I think it is kind of colonial not to think with categories from other parts of the world if you've come to understand them well. And Indian philosophies have theory that's very much worth taking seriously, which is, is why in my comparative theology um, in this project to think seriously with the tattvas, like that's a part of my theology now. Um, and I've, you know, I've sort of tried it on and may, I'm suggesting that it's helpful to think with these categories of the world being made up this way. Um, in an earlier book um, on, on aesthetics and emotion, I think with the Indian uh, theological and aesthetic category of rasa, because I think that explains something that 
I don't believe Christian theology actually has great language for. It, it's interesting. I, 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 I presented from the Rasa book to a class of Christian theologians and about 10 minutes of our conversation was them saying, but isn't it like this in the Christian tradition? I'm like, mm. kind of, but here's why it's important to think about Rasa, right? Because Christians really don't pick out these pieces. And, you know, there's a concept here that doesn't exactly exist and it's helpful, right? So um, that, that- Can you say a little more about, can you say a little more about that? Because I actually, I, I um, am very interested in, in Rasa theory and actually the, especially, in, you know, Abhinav Avagupta, as you know, he went from being an, an aesthetician, right, or like an aesthetic theorist to being a kind of um, a theologian's philosopher or a theological philosopher, or philosophical theologian. And, um, and to me, it's very interesting that, you know, a lot of his concepts that are at once, at one time aesthetic get carried over and become sort of transmuted into theological terms. Um, and so there's this um, overlap between the aesthetic experience and, and the divine experience or the religious experience. So can you talk a little bit about what you see? Um, and I know that might be a little bit different from what 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 you have found in kind of the Rasa theory. But what what do you what is what are the nuances in Rasa that are missing in just kind of uh, you know otherwise Christian notions of emotion? Yeah, I mean, some of it is just having language to explain experiences that I've had um, as a as a musician I was classically trained I was also you know brought up in the church where we would sing together and different kinds of music would lead to these transcendent experiences and there are theologians who have talked who have written about transcendence and art and so forth um, and I use the word transcendence, but it's not only transcendence, it's deeply embodied. Mm -hmm. So Christian theologians could talk about the transcendence, like being catapulted into sort of, you know, um, ecstasy or whatever. Um, but it, it's often sort of like um, leaving the body or, or leaving it all behind or whatever. And um, as a musician, I also knew in my body you know, what it's like to be in an orchestra and have everything just come together just right. And the, you know, like I've, I've practiced, I am using my skill to contribute to this thing. There are other bodies around me with their instruments and there's an audience and their presence matters. And so all of, and there's sound waves, right? Um, all of these things are part of what is what comes together to be this blissful moment um, or, or disturbing moment or whatever emotion is being, um, is being evoked. And I couldn't find anything theological that, that explained what was happening, you know, protest marches and we're all chanting like, and, and, and something is happening that is more than, it's, it's our bodies and it's more, right? So Rasa, so Abhidhav Gupta in his literary theory says that the, the taste of emotion rasa um, sort of produced through uh, drama or art, um, and, and it's not it's not just emotion. It's it's like a mood or an essence or this thing that you savor. Tasting that is akin to the taste of brahman, 
And I said, yes, <laughs> that is true. And I want to know more about this. So in Russia theory, there are nine primary emotions and a whole bunch of other supporting emotions. And there's actually a formula for how, how a rasa is evoked. There's like, like I was practicing my instrument, um, some preparation that goes into it, the setting needs to be right, the, you know, the, the accompanying emotions all have to be right. And then this will produce in audiences this, the intended effect. And there are nine primary ones. The theological dimension, um, Abhinavogipta tends towards Shanta or the peaceful sentiment where um, it's very non-dual, right? <laughs> um, it, as, as the primary rasa that, that is kind of the, the religious rasa, right? The taste of Brahman. Um, and so I explore that in terms of um, peace and contemplation in Christian tradition as the thing that we cultivate. But then the bhakti traditions, especially the Gaudiya Vaishnavas, for them, love is the most important, bhakti rasa. And, um, uh, and so I work with someone like Bernard of Clairvaux in the, in the Christian tradition who writes on the Song of Songs and has all the ingredients of rasa. And so I, I use that as, an, as, a, as a, you know, a comparison of how the de devotional sentiment of love is produced, right, through practices and all of this, right? And then you know, I mentioned being at a protest march and the sense of rasa that comes out of that. Uh, one of the other rasas is, is anger or rage, fury. Fury is the language that I use in the book. And so I look at um, uh, anger against injustice as another kind of religious emotion. Um, and rasa, the rasa theory gave me a way of thinking about that that was so much more rich than anything that I had really seen, you know, like, why are we angry at, at injustice? Well, because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's a little flat, right? For me, it's deeply embodied and passionate and sacred. So um, uh, rasa theory helped me to think about that in a way that, that I, I wasn't really getting the, the tools in my own tradition. Yeah, I love that, and it feels like the the ability to um, through kind of the rasa lens to perceive or to be able to look at your own emotional qualia as as sacred actually can reposition you and with relationship to those because I think there is a lot of the oh I don't want to feel this way or this is the wrong emotion right I'm not supposed to feel this way anger is bad you know um, shouldn't be angry at anyone I should always feel um, love and tenderness for my neighbor <laughs> and um, and so yeah affirming the divinity of all of these layers is kind of it's there's something quite liberating about it mm -hmm. yeah and and that includes you know because Rasa has a kind of formula to it and like you can get better at it and you can have worse ones. And, you know, um, it also gives you a way of analyzing what goes wrong, right? Like not all of our emotions are good information. Like they're information, yeah, definitely. but you know, they may not always be the ones that we want to act on. Um, yeah. And so there is this degree of sort of refinement, not in sort of an elitist um, sense, but rather again, religious practices that go into um, discerning uh, what's divine here, what's worth following, what's worth cultivating, um, uh, th that I find very helpful. Mm. 
Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation, Michelle, and I'm so grateful for having had the opportunity to speak with you today. Is there anything um, based on what we talked about that you'd like to leave the listeners with in terms of um, anything that we've discussed about the body or emotion and, and their relationship with theology and comparative theology? Well, I've really appreciated all of your questions and thank you for uh, your interest in my work. I think the one thing that maybe uh, I would want to end with is, you know, um, something that, that you were asking about earlier about um, like, why does comparative theology and why do these kinds of learning from each other, why does this matter for our yeah. contemporary world? And, uh, you know, I work with people who are going to be religious leaders and um, they're going to be spiritual care providers, psychotherapists, and they're, they're working, uh, they're, they're becoming skilled at integrating uh, the wisdom of their own tradition or multiple traditions into their practices. And, and that's, that's really wonderful. Um, I, I think about why do this in schools? It's because it's the opportunity to shape the people who will be shaping the next generations. And if there's a kind of openness to one another, if there's a kind of like understanding, right? Like we need to know about our neighbors. Um, that's a, that is a kind of difference than, than some of the Christian uh, traditions, uh, churches that I've known. It's, you know, even those who are sort of positively disposed towards their um, towards religious diversity often don't know what to do because they don't have the skills they don't have they feel like they don't know enough and they don't want to be embarrassed they don't want to say the wrong thing um, we have to get over that as a society um, and to take some risks to get to know one another to not know everything to make mistakes and build their kinds of understanding and relationship that will come in useful when we need it I think about, for example, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, where the people who had interfaith networks already in place were able to use them to help people. <laughs> and this happens all the time after crisis. And sometimes we start with building those relationships because we need to, because there's been a, a, a violent act against a religious community. But when those relationships and those habits of getting to know one another are already in place, I just want to think that we are going to be in a position to to do better by one another and to to change the systems that that are keeping apart keeping us apart and also devaluing some people in society. That's that's a lot. I mean, comparative theology can't do all things. I just think it's it contributes something really important to a, a better world. Mm. I would agree. And I also, you know, I just want to go back to your remarks on constructive theology, because I think that's such an important component of it, because for those who, it, it, it seems like there is a yearning, right, for spiritual depth. You actually mentioned this in one of your articles, and yet there's a kind of dearth of spiritual possibilities, because, you know, people have been scarred by religious institutions that are perceived to be rigid and fundamentalist. And those have kind of a monopoly on people's imagination about, about what theology can be. And, and that's why constructive theology just seems like such a beautiful um, 
trajectory because it's it's open, it's inclusive. You know, I guess depending on who's practicing it, <laughs> um, it's it's you know it's it's ever broadening the scope of 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 theology and then and our understandings of the divine in such a way that I think will is is really necessary because a lot of people are really craving um, a kind of a sense of the world that is more than simply this, you know, just um, uh, merely brute physicality without any kind of sacred quality. And, and, um, and so the, the work of, of constructive theology does, uh, and, and comparative theology does seem to just um, offer the imagination something to grasp hold of and to to move in this direction of of perhaps um, some kind of you know spiritual fulfillment. So I appreciate the work of people like you and um, and thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. And I appreciate your work as well. Thank you for the conversation, but also thank you for the gift of this podcast. I've been listening and it's been fantastic. You are contributing to that. Um, uh, to meeting the the kinds of needs that you just articulated, the, the sense for something more, a sense for, you know, how to explore our connections and the sacred. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much.